Science and Answers. One of the most enjoyable times at our Youth Apologetics Conference is the question and answer time. Teens ask some very honest and challenging questions. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we'll be listening to a message that was taken from our 2020 Evian Youth Apologetics Conference. Annually, Pat brings in guest speakers from all over to teach and equip the youth of today. Listen now as Pat answers some of these challenging questions here in part one of this series, Tough Questions Teens Ask. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, we just finished our Evidence and Answers Youth Apologetics Conference. Over 100 teens gathered for our great apologetics conference again. And of course, each year, one of the favorite times is the question and answer times, where teens can ask almost anything they want to the speakers and Teens, of course, raised some very challenging questions here. This year, we had over 70 questions. Of course, we weren't able to answer them all at the conference. And so I thought I'd take some of the best questions that we had and answer them on this segment of the show. Of course, I can't go through all of the questions, but we'll go through as many as we can. I've got them divided into about four or five sections here. Basic apologetic questions, Bible questions, evangelism questions, issues dealing with sexuality, and finally with teen issues. So we're going to go and try and go through some of those tough questions that these teens ask during the question and answer time. So with that, let's begin with question number one. And our theme this year was truth for youth, and with an emphasis on you. So if you look at our poster, it was truth for you in bold letters with a TH at the end. So our emphasis, of course, was on the issue of truth. And question number one is, why did you focus this conference on relativism? Well, we had a panel of youth pastors who helped us come up with the theme, and they felt that this was the theme that needed to be addressed this year, the issue of truth, because the majority in the culture today, especially the young people, believe that truth is not absolute. It does not apply to all people at all times in all places. The vast majority of young people and people in the culture today believe that truth is relative. The relativism of truth is one of the ideas that dominate our culture today. And as a result of buying into relativism of truth, that leads to moral relativity, right? That right and wrong are determined either by the culture or by the individual. There are no moral absolutes, universal absolute laws of right and wrong that govern all societies and all peoples at all times. There is no moral standard of truth. And of course, eventually that leads to pluralism, okay? the belief that all religions are equally valid and true. If truth is relative, then no one has the absolute truth. Therefore, morality becomes relative, and it leads to pluralism, the belief that all religions are equally valid and true. And then finally, it leads to the dangerous redefinition of the new tolerance. Traditional tolerance says we disagree, but I will not throw you in jail or persecute you, but I'll do everything I can to persuade you to my position, because I believe through the facts and through the evidence, you'll see that my position is true and yours is incorrect. And I'm sure you'll do the same 
and we'll see who's got the true position by looking at the facts and the evidence and who's got the best reason behind their arguments. Okay, But without that, you end up in what's called the new tolerance, that all values, beliefs, and lifestyles are equally valid and true. And to say that someone's value or lifestyle or belief system is wrong is being, quote, intolerant. Okay, it leads to new tolerance. And a society that tolerates anything will fall for anything. And eventually, the, a tolerant society that tolerates anything will be destroyed by those who do not tolerate it. Okay, and there's severe consequences when you buy into relativism of truth, moral relativity, pluralism, and the new tolerance. Okay, These ideas are destroying Western culture. You can see these ideas having a devastating impact through Western Europe, and it's having a devastating impact here in the United States. And so, as we know, civilizations rise, civilizations fall, and they fall from within. And the reason they fall is because they buy into the false ideas that disintegrate the moral foundations of a culture. And so that's why we focused here on relativism at this particular conference. Christianity is built on the idea that truth is absolute and truth is rooted in God. And unfortunately, surveys are showing the majority of the culture believes in the relativism of truth. I think the last Barna survey taken about three years ago showed about 65% of the culture believe that morals are relative. And so therefore, it's derived from the idea of truth being relative. So the idea of the relativity of truth is probably higher, maybe 70 to 90% in the American culture today. And unfortunately, the majority of People in the church, especially the young people, hold to the idea that truth is relative. And so when a pastor is preaching in the sermon, the young person or the majority of people in the church might be sitting in there saying, well, that's true for you, but not for me. You know, or well, that's that's a great suggestion from the Bible there. I'll take it or leave it, depending on how I like it. That is why it was important for us to address the issue of truth and why the youth pastors here saw this issue being very relevant and one that needed to be addressed. That's why we, you know, in our first message, we spoke on the failure of relativism. And then I spoke on the authority and inspiration of the Bible, our standard of truth given to us by God. Now, the next question is another good one here. Why is relativism in this world? I think what this person is asking is how did it come about? That's a very great question here. According to the Bible, in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is rooted in God, and God is the source of truth. Now, why is relativism in this world? Well, if truth finds its source in God, then truth is absolute. But once men turn away from God, from the theistic worldview or the Christian worldview, and embrace the naturalist worldview or atheism that teaches the universe is all that there is. If there is no God, which is the worldview of the culture today, the naturalist worldview, then truth, if it does not find its origin in God, where in the world does truth find its source? It finds its source in man. And is man all-knowing? Is man eternal? Does he know all things? No, he does not. All right, so if truth is created by man, eventually you're going to come to the conclusion that truth is relative. It's created by the culture or it's created by the individual. 
That's the eventual conclusion you're going to come to. And so relativism entered into Western culture when Western culture during the Enlightenment project turned away from God and the theistic worldview and replaced it with the naturalist worldview. And as a result, if truth is rooted in man, if man is source of truth, then you're eventually going to come to the conclusion that truth is relative. And that's how we find ourselves in this situation today. So it goes right back to worldviews. If God exists, truth is rooted in God and it's anchored in him. And the very character, truth is the very character of God. It's absolute. Truth reflects the character of God. But if God does not exist, or if you want to pretend God doesn't exist, then you have to say truth originates with man and it is then created by man and it becomes relative. And that's how we find ourselves in the situation in which relativism of truth and moral relativity dominate our culture today. Next question is related to this, and uh, the question this young person asks is, how do we know if something is true if our senses deceive our perception of reality, such as optical illusions? Well, once again, if truth is rooted in God, then it's absolute. No matter what our perceptions or feelings may be, it's rooted in God, and therefore it's absolute. If God does not exist, truth is rooted in man. And here's one example of how our senses are not always correct. And so you end up with, relativism of truth. Now, how do we discover truth? Well, truth is discovered by special revelation through God's word, but it's also God created us to discover truth and to live according to that truth. And so our senses generally are reliable. All right. So we should trust our senses unless there's good reason not to trust them. And when it comes to illusions, when you're in a dream state or in your hallucinations, your senses can generally tell you that they cannot be trusted at this time. It is not perceiving reality correctly. And that's the definition of truth, by the way. Truth is what matches the facts. Truth corresponds to reality. All right. That's the biblical and classical definition of truth. Truth is what matches the facts. Truth corresponds to reality, right? And our senses can generally tell us about the world around us, but often they cannot. That's why we rely on special revelation from God's word. And we generally know when our senses are not being accurate here. We can generally discern that. Uh, you see it even in this question here. So the general rule is God's word is the standard of truth. And then generally we should trust our senses unless there's good reason not to. But our senses, once again, the empirical evidence is not always 100% accurate. But generally it can discern truth about the world around us. Next question here, can there be a person who claims they are relativists but sometimes believe there is truth? Well, that's the whole problem of the relativist position, isn't it? You cannot live it out consistently. To say the relativist position is true, you're making an absolute truth statement. You're building your foundation on the very premise you deny. It's a self-contradicting ideology. That's why it fails. To say there are no absolutes, guess what? You just made an absolute. To say we cannot know the truth you simply ask, is that a true statement? If that's a true statement, he just stated a truth there, right? So truth exists 
and it's undeniable. And so a person who would say something like that shows you he is inconsistent with the very position he is trying to hold. That's why relativism fails. It's self-contradictory. To say there are no truths, you just made a truth statement. To make any truth statement shows you relativism is self-contradictory and it fails. It's impossible to consistently hold that position and exist in the real world. Next question here is, could relativism be used for good or does it always have to be bad? And in parentheses, the kid in the second row with the Jesus shirt. The problem is the way this question is stated. All right. Could relativism be used for good or is it always have to be bad? That's not the question. The question is, is relativism true or is it false? Nobody wants to live according to what is false. We all are upset when we're lied to or when a ad on TV or in the newspaper is false. All right. People go to court over things like that. Why? Because we don't live according to what is false. We're designed to live to know truth and to live according to that truth. So the question is, you know, is it true or is it false? And if it's false, you definitely don't want to buy into that ideology. You always want to live according to what is true. That's why we try to learn. We go to school to learn. What are we learning? We are learning truth, all right? Discerning between truth and error. So if relativism is false, that's not an ideology you want to embrace. Next question here is, what makes other religions wrong and Christianity right? Or how do we know any other religion other than Christianity is true and others are false? Well, that's the heart of the question here. And unfortunately, a lot of people say, well, you can't prove either one. All right. I was in a conversation with several engineers and they said, well, you can't really know if it's true or not. You just got to take it by faith. Well, that unfortunately is incorrect. All right. If I just have to take it by faith, then I, I, you know, then I should just believe anything. Everyone makes me feel the best. How do we know Christianity is true, or how do we know anything is true? Well, we look at the evidence. All right. Uh, we use our reasoning faculty, the basic laws of logic. We use our reason. We look at the evidence, and we discern which position is true based on the evidence that is there. So when it comes to the worldview, there's three basic worldviews, theism, atheism or naturalism, and pantheism, that God is an impersonal energy of the universe. God and the universe are one. Well, if you look at the evidence, the universe has a beginning. Now, whatever has a beginning must have a cause, all right? And for every cause, there's an effect. For every effect, there's a cause, the law of cause and effect. No effect is greater than its cause. So whatever caused the universe is greater than the universe and brought it into being, willed it into being. All right. Now, if you're an atheist, the naturalist position is nothing created this great universe. If you're a pantheist, the universe is eternal. All right. But the evidence shows the universe has a beginning. Something caused the universe. And I think... Genesis 1-1 is your best answer here. You also look at the apparent design in the world around us. I mean, the universe is finely tuned, right? The constants that hold the universe together sit on a razor's edge. They are finely tuned. 
the sun is exactly the right size we need to have life upon this earth. The planets are set in the right rotation sequence, the right size, so the forces of gravity pull on each other, allowing us to have life upon this earth. The brain, you know, it's a complex machine, more complex than any computer that we have ever created. The apparent design shows you there's an intelligent designer. DNA is another one, the DNA code as Bill Gates said, is more complex than any other computer code that we've ever created, right? So something like DNA shows you there's an intelligent designer. DNA code, language, points to intelligence. All that points to an intelligent, all-powerful creator. Therefore, pantheism would be out the window. And all the religions that hold to it, like Hinduism, Taoism, several sects of Buddhism, the New Age, they would be ultimately false. Naturalism and the ideas that are upheld, that are built on the foundation of naturalism or atheism would ultimately be false. Therefore, that leaves you pretty much with the God of the Bible. Complexity and design point to intelligence. That points to an intelligent creator. The God of the Bible is the most reasonable conclusion here. Then you look at the universal moral law code. Everyone has an understanding of right and wrong. You know, where does that come from? A moral law must come from a moral lawgiver. So you're talking about an all-powerful, eternal, personal, righteous, and just God. And that's the best explanation for the universe around us. And I believe that the Bible describes the God, the creator of the universe. I think the Christian worldview best explains the universe around us. Then we have the resurrection of Christ. Here you have a man who claimed to be God and confirmed his claim to his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. And we have a very accurate record of him in the New Testament here. So a man who claimed to be God prophesied and performed his own resurrection from the dead and lived a sinless, miraculous life. Well, I would say that guy confirmed his claim to be the divine son of God as no one else, no one else in history has ever done. So you look at all the evidence and it best supports Christianity. And if Christianity is true, then the other worldviews and religions that teach contrary to it would ultimately be false. Now, other religions, are they false in every single thing they teach? No. All right. If you look at the Confucian system, and some parts of other religions, their ethical principles are quite similar, you know, and there's others that also teach monotheism. So they're not completely wrong in everything, but in being able to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe and to have salvation in that arena, only Christianity is indeed true. And the great thing is God has revealed himself through creation his son, and through his word. And so you can know him personally through the Bible, through the study of creation, and through his son, Jesus Christ. Next question here, and we're just going through them pretty quickly here. Why the God of the Bible and not Allah? Allah of the Quran. Well, when you study the nature of God in the Bible and in the Quran, you see that they're very, very different. In the Bible, God is a trinity, one nature, revealed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the Quran, that is blasphemy, all right? Worthy of death, okay? You've committed the unpardonable sin of shirk. Throughout the Quran, 
it states that the Trinity is blasphemous teaching. So you cannot say the Trinity is the true nature of God or it's blasphemy and both are right at the same time. Also, when you look in the Quran and in the Bible, the nature of God is very different. I mean, you look in the Bible, God is a personal God who seeks to rescue his people and have a very personal relationship with him. You look at the illustrations in the Bible of God the Father. He's described as the good shepherd who gives his very life for the sheep. The story of the prodigal son where the father is looking daily for his prodigal son to return. And when he does, Luke says that he runs to the son, something unheard of in the Middle East. That's the kind of personal relationship that's pictured of God in the Bible. Hosea, a husband with his adulterous wife, how he keeps reaching out and rescuing her. In the Quran, Allah doesn't have a personal relationship with his people. He's watching. He's watching you carefully. And you'd better be obeying his law or judgment is coming upon you. But he doesn't have a personal relationship with his people like you see in the Bible. The imagery of the prodigal son, the good shepherd, the husband to a wife. Those images are foreign to the Quran. Allah in the Quran has 99 names, the 99 names of terror. You know, love is not one of them. You know, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. That is one of the primary character qualities of God is love. That's foreign to Allah in the Quran. And so if you study the Quran and the Bible, you will see that Allah of the Quran and the God of the Bible are very, very different, especially when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, that Jesus Christ is the divine son of God who revealed himself here in the flesh, died and rose again. Something Islam clearly rejects. It's blasphemous to say that God has a son. They reject that Jesus Christ is the divine son of God. They reject his death and the resurrection. The more you study the Quran and the more you study the Bible, you're going to see that we're not talking about the same God here. They're very different. The final question we're going to answer in this segment here is how do you know Jesus was saying the truth? Well, Jesus stated, you know, I am the way, the truth and the life. And Jesus claimed to be the divine son of God and God is truth. And Jesus confirmed his claim to be God in the flesh through his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. Through his life, he lived and embodied truth. He lived a sinless life. In fact, in John chapter 10, verse 33, he asked his opponents, what sin do you convict me of? of? Of what good work do you stone me for? You know, he said, I've shown you many good works. So which of these do you stone me? He was saying, can you convict me of any sin? They could not. Even his closest disciples, those who were with him for three years, could not point out any sin in his life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Pilate, when Jesus stood trial before him, Pilate looked at Jesus and says, I find nothing wrong with this man. So Christ taught truth and he lived out the truth so powerfully no one could condemn him of sin. His words were consistent with the teachings of the word of God. The prophecies that he made were indeed true, especially predicting and accomplishing his own resurrection from the dead. And so he was the embodiment of truth. So we can trust that what he indeed taught then was indeed true. And you can experience the truth 
of his teachings as you apply his truth to your life. Well, that's all the time we have in this segment for the tough questions teens ask here. This is from our recent Youth Apologetics Conference. You know, I just gave short answers here, you know, without looking at notes right off the top of my head, like I did on stage with the youth there at our conference. But for more complete answers, go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org and type in some keywords there to your questions and you'll discover articles and radio interviews on many of these questions that were asked and they'll give you very much more in-depth and thorough answers whether from me or guests on our show or other guest speakers on the topics that many of you are asking so those are just some brief answers that I gave right off the top of my head here looking at these questions We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church Bible study or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcast, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.